Welcome to Center Ice, the Hockey Alberta podcast, home to all things hockey in our great province. Now, here's your host, Kara Spady. Hi, I'm Kara Spady, the host of Hockey Alberta's Center Ice podcast. Today, we're joined by a legend in the para-hockey world, a renowned motivational speaker, someone whose story is an inspiration, and most recently, a contender on Canada's Ultimate Challenge, Chris Cedarstrand. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. My pleasure. You've been around the game for a long time. How did you get your start in hockey? You know what? I grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan, Martinsville, which is just north of Saskatoon. And I think that was just, you know, more specifically in those small town communities. It's sort of what you did. Dad still has a picture of me. I think I might have been two or three years old with my first pair of skates that I bought at Christmas. And it just sort of took off from there. I mean, cold winters in Saskatchewan, we were fortunate enough to have a yard that had an outdoor rink and the community had a really nice facility there as well. I just started in my journey in hockey that way and just progressed. So you were the kid that was definitely always involved in the game. What was your background like going through the minor ranks? Yeah, it was a cool situation in Martinsville being so close to the city, so close to Saskatoon. By the time I had sort of hit, we went through our minor U7, U9. We played in a center four league initially out there. So just some of the smaller towns that were around us and that involved a lot of travel as a kid which was cool for us i don't think so much for my parents having to bomb around and i said those nice minus 30 minus 40 temperatures middle of winter but played all my minor hockey in martinsville so by the time we sort of hit peewee we were fortunate enough the association got sort of brought into the saskatoon circle that way and that just absolutely blew up the double uh, a program in Martinsville, because I mean, obviously the Saskatoon League was a very, very competitive league, especially in Saskatchewan, just being essentially the largest city there. I was fortunate enough to play my, my PBAA there and then starting off in Bantam and was fortunate enough to get drafted to the Red Deer Rebels and sort of went from there, played AAA Midget in Tisdale after that and made the jump up to the Western League. Like many Canadian kids, was your goal to play in the NHL? Oh, it absolutely was. It's definitely part of my story that way. I remember growing up and, and having, that was obviously a big aspiration of mine. And like I said, being in that small town, it was hockey, hockey, hockey. I mean, it was from winter to summer, you were, you know, out playing street hockey or playing rollerblade hockey. You just, you know, that was, was one of your things. And it was, it was pretty cool. I either wanted to play in the NHL or be a firefighter. So when you were drafted to the WHL at that time, it seemed like going through the Canadian hockey league was the only way to the show. As you started playing with the Red Deer Rebels, was that your moment where you're like, oh my gosh, this is it. I can make this dream happen. Yeah, it was definitely something getting the play up there. was It was obviously a dream growing up. Like I said, where I grew up, the Saskatoon Blades were our biggest hockey team, right? So going to watch them as kids and they had an incredible fan base in Saskatoon. So it was almost like the NHL to me. But then as I started playing, you're getting to talk to NHL scouts and you're realizing that this is a dream sort of come true and you're working towards something. Unfortunately for me, I ran into some concussion issues and things like that that sort of derailed my Western League career. But it was something I definitely knew that I had it in me to play at a professional level, that getting to that, that I NHL mark was definitely an obtainable goal. It sounds like through the research that I did, concussions is ultimately the reason why you had to leave playing at that caliber. So what was it like having to leave the game, not necessarily on your terms? And at that point, did you think that, okay, this is it for hockey? Yeah, I mean, having to, you know, leave the game not on your own terms is I think that's hard for, you know, regardless of the sport, but I mean, it's more specifically hockey in Canada. I mean, growing up and just pouring absolutely everything into it and then continuing to reach those goals, you really start putting all your eggs in one basket at that point. And, and like you had mentioned, you know, the Western Hockey League was sort of the way you had to go and you did end up sacrificing you know, certain elements of your life, just with uh, the road travel and things like that, even playing AAA midgets in Saskatchewan. I mean, it's, you know, a provincial wide league. So you're, you're sacrificing some of your education and, you know, just sort of the way that you're going about that essentially being told, you know, at that point I was suffering from some pretty severe post-concussion syndrome. And after the last concussion I got swift current, I actually started to lose some vision. So it was getting to that point that something needed to be done. And but at that age, I'd put all my eggs in one basket, essentially. It was ex an extremely hard thing to do. I mean, it was obviously for the best and people had my best intentions in mind when that decision was made. But for me, I would have just continued to play. 
right? I mean, that was just, you know, definitely a part of the mentality back then as well. The concussion protocol and everything like that was really just starting to come into play. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I had my bell rung. That was it. And it was, uh, it was a funny thing. I, I did some fighting back in the day, but I didn't really get any concussions from fighting. It was a lot of weird gets and few slap shots in the face and things like that. Yeah, it was it was devastating to have that rug sort of pulled out from underneath me. So you're finally there. And then to go through the concussions, I always think that Sidney Crosby was kind of the one who put concussions on the map and started to give it the platform that it needed. So at that time, to be suffering through the concussions, it's scary. I'm jumping ahead here. But then when you started playing para hockey, were you ever concerned about suffering from more concussions or if you would have any symptoms arise? You know what? It honestly never really crossed my mind. It had been such a long journey for me, sort of post-accident, I guess, that when I finally found that thing that just gave me life again, essentially, right? I mean, I knew sport was definitely that aspect that was a driving force for me. And sort of when I found para hockey, I just right back in deep again. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate in a sled. I'm a really big guy and the hits to the head aren't as, I wouldn't say they are, they're, they're definitely there, but just given my stature and everything like that, I, I never really was impacted in that way on the ice. A lot of the, the systems and tactics, right? It's not beating somebody one-on-one. You got to beat them with speed or physicality because we're not skating backwards. So it's, it's always that head to head race that, that you're engaged in contact is such a huge part of the sport. It never really did cross my mind after the fact. And it had been quite a few years since I'd sort of gone through the whole post-concussion syndrome. I know after my last one, it was, it was a lot of years before I really started to feel normal again. I guess, right? Like I had sensitivity to light. I had a ton of fatigue. I wouldn't be the one to say I had a lot of mood swings. There, there was definitely, it was definitely a very trying time that way. For me, it was just something that I didn't think of. I think at the time, it sounds like you were transitioning into para hockey and you needed to find that breath again. But I fast forwarded through all of that because we're <laughs> missing a very large piece of your journey here. And you had mentioned earlier that firefighting was another one of your dreams. So after the WHL was kind of pulled out from underneath view, you pivoted and focused on, hey, let's go to firefighting school. Can you just take us through your story about the new goals that you set after leaving the WHL and then how that chain of events led up to your accident and ultimately changed everything for you? Dealing with all the post-concussion syndrome and things like that, I... I had to figure out what I was obviously going to do, you know, with, with my life going forward. And, you know, the, the Canadian Hockey League has an incredible, Western Hockey League has an incredible education system for post-secondary things. I was sitting there thinking about, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to move forward with my life at this point? I mean, I'm in my early 20s and I'm trying to navigate something that I didn't think I would be navigating. I had mentioned I really put a lot of my eggs in, in one basket and... It just sort of clicked. I sort of went back to that, you know, four or five-year-old <laughs> mentality. My wife would say I'm probably still at that mentality level most of the time. But yeah, I, I just went, you know, if I can't play hockey, what am I going to do? And I was just like, well, let's, you know, let's be a firefighter. The parallels between hockey and, and the fire industry, there's so many of them. I mean, there's just so much teamwork and camaraderie. And you see so many ex-athletes end up in the fire industry just because of those features that get brought in. That was my next goal. And just being a very goal-oriented person, I went in deep on that and just started training as hard as I could and studying as much as I could. At that point, you essentially had to go to either Vermilion or Brandon. Those were the two very large accredited fire academies in Western Canada. And it was sort of like, if you wanted to work in BC or Alberta, you went to Vermilion. And if you wanted to work in sort of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, you went out to Brandon. For me, getting into it a little bit later, I was obviously a little bit more behind the eight ball. Just having spent that time recovering and getting sort of my bearings back. There were a lot of kids that come out of high school and they know that the fire industry is their direction that they want to take. So they're getting involved in things and volunteering at fire halls and getting some of that experience in place. And obviously having that hockey background is a, is a huge benefit in that world because they know you have all those qualities instilled with you, especially if you're playing at a high performance level, they weed out the more toxic people like that, that aren't conducive to being in a good team formula in the fire world. You need to be able to absolutely trust every person that you're on shift with, because if you're going into a structure fire, it's the other people that need to have your back. God forbid something happens. They're the people that are pulling you out. Ultimately ended up getting 
accepted into fire college and finished up at the top of my class. At that time, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, took a job out in Black Diamond as a teacher. We moved out to Okotoks here, and that's sort of when the whole process started. I was going through the hiring process within the CFD. I was working a bit out at Sisica, just really trying to get my feet wet, get as much exposure as I could, and just being a very young family. We were married in July of, of 2005. I took a road construction job while I was going through the whole process of everything, and September 21st of 2005 is really when my life changed. For those that aren't familiar with your story, can you tell us how your life changed? I was backing up a big road packer that day. We knew that I was supposed to be getting a phone call from the fire department that day through the people I knew saying that I had a job. But being young and recently married, obviously you're trying to make as much money as you can. And instead of staying at home that day, I decided to go in and work with really heavy rainfall. There were some of the floods and things like that happening. I was backing a very large, it's about a 20,000 kilogram machine up, uh, up Bowen Sarsi here. One of the big road packers that smoothed the road out. As I was backing this piece of machinery up, it, it had a, a mechanical failure and ultimately I started rolling back down Bow Trail toward the intersection at Bowen Sarsi and brakes weren't working. I ended up trying to run it into sort of the, we were working in the median. So I tried running it into the asphalt to sort of slow it down because that's how it was parked at night. In a bad turn of events, when I tried to do that, the piece of machinery actually jumped up onto the asphalt and now it's starting to pick up a, a lot more speed being up on the asphalt. And I was sort of left with two choices. I could have jumped off at that point, probably would have had a few bumps and bruises, or I had to try and get the machine back in the median where we were working. The accident happened at about around 5.20 PM. So anybody's familiar with that area up here knows how busy that intersection is. What it ended up happening is I traveled far enough down the hill that that sort of like six inch lip where I tried slowing the piece of machinery down initially, it almost turned into like a two foot drop. I decided to try and get it back into the median where we were working just to stop it from going into the intersection. A piece of machinery like that just would have been devastating. I don't want to think of sort of the carnage that it would have caused had it gone in there. And in some crazy way, I'm not going to say I jumped the machinery piece of machinery back in there, but you know, I got it back into the median and it landed flat just as I went to go and jump off after that, it hit a big pile of dirt and ended up the roll cage ended up landing on me. And we both, me and the machine had enough momentum that it landed on me and sort of bounced, I guess. And it went one direction still, and I went in another and I ended up, you know, laying there and obviously having my fire and, you know, primary care paramedic experience, I'm laying there just knowing that I'm in really rough shape. I reached out and I grabbed my, grabbed my leg and it was just sort of like pulp would be the best way to, to describe it without getting into a real, you know, sort of gory description of it. And I'm obviously bleeding pretty heavily at that point. My saving angel that day, saving grace was I had a lady coming home from the, the foothills, a trauma nurse, and she, without even thinking, jumped into the car, grabbed her trauma bag and ran over to me and tried to get the bleeding and everything under control as, as much as she could. I was conscious during the whole process, which has been, you know, a cause of a lot of other mental, you know, obviously dealing with a significant injury like that, you're going to have some mental health things. Being conscious through that has definitely caused me some PTSD and things like that. Ultimately, this incredible lady got the bleeding under control enough that when the ambulance finally got there, they were able to get me loaded up and the last thing I remember of that accident was just being newly married for just a little over two months. I, I told the paramedics, told if I love her and I finally, you know, passed out just due to blood loss, ended up waking up. I think it was about a week later, you know, they took me out of a medically induced coma and told me that in a life-saving surgery, they had to amputate my right leg above the knee and they put me back to sleep for a little bit, woke me up and. I had to start living life as a person with a very significant disability when coming from somebody that had played high level sports and I played every sport under the sun growing up, just like most kids did soccer, snowboarding, like absolutely everything. It was a pretty hard pill to swallow. I mean, I'm all of a sudden I'm laying there in bed and I need, you know, I need help to get up to go to the washroom let alone even start thinking about anything else and how am I going to be a dad? How am I going to be a husband? Yeah, it was a pretty, pretty rough go. As your life is 
basically flashing before your eyes and how everything's changed. What was your mindset like in between those years of your accident and then eventually finding para hockey? There were a lot of a lot of ups and downs, obviously. The hard part was I started on a real big low. I had somebody that, you know, came into the hospital at that point and was supposed to be sort of your inspiration or show you a light there is at the end of the tunnel. I remember it so vividly because I remember sitting there and having this gentleman hobbled down the hallway to me and didn't look like he would never normal gate, didn't have anything like that. And he comes and he's this guy that's supposed to lift my spirits up. And at the end of it all, he basically tells me that the best thing you can do in life is bowling as far as a sport goes. And nothing against the bowlers out there, <laughs> but to come from playing hockey and, and being in the fire industry and having that athletic background to being told that like, that's sort of a pinnacle of uh, what your sport is uh, or athletic life is going to be at that point. It was something that just absolutely destroyed me. You know, at, at that time in 2005, we didn't have the technology like we have now. It wasn't jumping on YouTube and, and checking out the Paralympics. We didn't really have access to that kind of information. So I just was left laying there in a bed. It took me a, you know, a while to recover from that. And, and with, you know, a significant injury like mine came obviously a lot of other issues, a lot of mental health issues. There was a lot of depression, PTSD, and a lot of stuff that I still deal with today. And having that significant injury as well, trying to control pain and things like that. You're being fed just a ton of medication. They had me on fentanyl in the hospital and it was sort of a thing that, that continued just because I had such a bad crush injury on my leg. Then during that surgery, they were trying to actually harvest veins from my good leg. They were initially trying to save this leg, which I'm very thankful that that didn't happen because they basically said it would have been left like warm and pink. You know, it would have been almost unusable. By trying to save that leg, they sort of garbled up my, my good leg a little bit. And then when my femoral artery blew out, they ended up having to amputate and that sort of rush amputation, but not having the time to really draw out or plan out that amputation, I ended up with a very, very significant amount of nerve damage in my residual limb. So we sort of started on that whole journey of, of pain meds and things like that. And it was, it was a lot of years of just ups and downs and it's like the pain continues and they just amplify the amount of fentanyl they give you. Finally, it got to that point where between the mental health issues and then the amount of medication, my amazing wife just was like, we need to figure this out. You're just sort of turning into a zombie. And so we talked to my medical team and decided that this was something that we needed to stop and address, try and address these issues in another way. I was extremely fortunate that I had absolutely zero mental dependency on any of these drugs, but being on them for that long, your body obviously develops a physical dependency on them. It was a it was a long three months of just cold sweats and puking, and, you know, just going through this crazy withdrawal of coming off fentanyl and the number of other drugs that they had. Once that all took place and I, I had that clarity back in my mind, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. Within that same time period, I had received an email. This was many years that this sort of took place. Everyone sees email, they get inspirational things, right? You know, a little cat hanging off the clothesline. I discarded so many of these things. And I got one one day from one of the fire instructors and it was just a simple quote and it was scarce reminded where you've been. They shouldn't dictate where you go. And for some reason that just resonated with me. I just sort of sat there. I was laying in bed when I, I read this email and I went, wow, I'm letting physical scars and mental scars completely control the direction. And that was something that when I realized that my life turned a corner. And I realized that I needed to go out and find what made me happy and what gave me direction in my life. And that I wasn't going to let those physical or mental scars dominate that direction anymore. And so we sort of started off a sport. I joined the Alberta Amputee Sport Association and got into golf because I mean, hockey player golf, that's just, it's just a natural sort of fit. And started taking off with golf and, you know, was fortunate enough to play in the Canadian National Amputee Open. And that just really opened doors as far as sport goes. Back then, just not having the technology and the availability to sort of see sports. I had a gentleman run me down in a mall one day. I'm crutching through in the mall and he's, you know, the national development paracycling coach. And he's like, Hey, do you want to try, want to try paracycling? And so, Hey, you know, let's do this. I've never, you know, done anything like that in my life before, but it was just 
that exposure to new sports and seeing how far these sports can take you. So I got on the bike and, and started to take off with that. I was excelling at it. Then being just an accident prone person, one of the training camps, I blew my knee out. And that sort of put a little bit of a, you know, a bit of a hold on that and got into snowboarding. And then finally it was actually Kieran Block, another Western Hockey League player that was playing on the national or ice hockey team at that point. I'd seen sledge hockey before that, before Kieran talked to me and it sort of goes in, you get, you know, two sort of lanes with a lot of the adaptive sports. You get an all oh, that's cute factor and you get the holy crap factor. And I'd seen the all oh, that was cute factor. I think I saw it at a flames game and you know, it was just, it was little guys out on the ice and people getting pushed around and coming from that high performance background, I sort of just sloughed it off and didn't, didn't think much more of it. And when Kieran brought me out to the World's Pledge Challenge here in, in Calgary, it just absolutely blew my mind, you know, to see these guys out there and, and see the speed and physicality and, and it, I mean, at the end of the day, it's hockey, but you were just, you were sitting and wearing our nation's jersey was one of the things I never got to do in my stand-up career. You know, I went to our provincial programs and some of the Hockey Canada stuff, but was never able to actually get to that final goal. So when I saw this in 2011, being that person this goal-oriented, it was all in. You know, I sat in a sled for the first time in 2011, right at the very end, I think it was about November. And by January of 2012, just through hard work and dedication. I got brought out to my first national development team camp and I just continued to grow from there. I was a Paralympic alternate in 2014 and I was at Worlds in 2015 where we won a silver and I ended up injuring my shoulder that year where I uh, needed some reconstruction. But yeah, I was fortunate enough to play till 2018, just the start of the 2018 season when I hurt my shoulder again. Personally, I think that para hockey is the most underrated sport because no one realizes the amount of skill and talent it actually takes to compete in it until you're on the sled and on the ice, realizing that, you know, I'm not ambidextrous and my left hand is pretty much useless, but I'm going to have to figure out how to stick handle and shoot both ways. But that being said, I know for some para-athletes that weren't hockey players at all before their accidents and then transitioned to para-hockey, they do it very easily because they didn't have any knowledge of the game prior, while others who are stand-up players either take longer to transition or don't even like the game because it's not the same. What was your experience like in that transition? For me, it was initially a little bit more difficult. I put the amount of time in that I needed to in my, in my sled. And like you had just mentioned, becoming ambidextrous, being able to use both hands. And I think it's getting your mind around that sport as well, because whenever I explain it to people that, that are out there trying it, when I've been fortunate enough to put a lot of pros in sleds, everybody gets out there and they just want to stick handle like you do in hockey. You almost need to get away from that mentality to start and you need to start thinking of the game almost more of like soccer because in soccer you're obviously kicking the ball and your your legs are your mode of propulsion and that's the same in sledge right your arms are your mode of propulsion and you're having to move with the puck at that point every time you stick handle you're not striding so you're slowing yourself down and so it becomes a, a game of puck placement and, and pushing it ahead to where you need to go and getting enough speed up where then you can start stick handling and allowing your sled skills to sort of take over. You know, for me, Kieran and Tyler McGregor on the national team right now played AAA midget. For a lot of those guys that were really big students of the game, that transition came a little bit easier. And especially as the game evolved, when Ken Babby took over coach of the para team here, just coming from his illustrious background. He really understood that the systems and tactics were such a huge part of the game. And it was something that was a little bit missing. There wasn't a lot of, of stuff in place there as far as tactics went. And so to have that come into play and then be instituted into the game, it, it changed for a lot of people that way, because guys that had the hockey IQ and the intelligence out there, when you have that, you're able to make up for some of the deficiencies, no different than any other sport. When you've got a lot of these other players that have been playing sledge hockey their whole life, you're transitioning into a sport that essentially they've been, you know, they've been skating since they were young. You've got incredible players like Brad Bowden, Billy Bridges, all of these guys, you know, they started playing when they were very young just because they had those congenital disabilities. And so you were able to find ways to keep up with them, I guess, right? Because you're not going to keep up with a guy like Brad Bowden, who was, who was essentially the, I'm going to say Wayne Gretzky, Connor McDavid of 
the Terra ice hockey world when he was playing. You know, I can't keep up with him in a straight line. It's just no way. He's developed muscles and muscle memory and the whole nine yards his entire life. I'm coming from a stand-up career where your arms are being used, but not in the same sense that they're being used in sledge hockey. So you have to start thinking the game through a little bit more. Just being that student of it, I think allows some of us to transition a lot easier than others. And then on the other side, there are some that just never clicks in that you sort of need to think outside of the stand-up hockey style and, and incorporate almost a few other sports into it. You mentioned that you're a strong frame, bigger frame than a lot of guys playing at the national level. How was it for you to actually get into the sled and figure out how you were going to keep up to these guys? Because you look at the American team and the theory is, is that they're so fast in their sleds because they're not carrying as much weight in some cases, whereas you're a very strong and muscular guy. So how did that work for you to keep up at that national level? I'd say I'm just gifted in that sense. It's sort of been my thing you know, my whole life, regardless of the sport I play, my cardio and strength are always there, but you know, I'm not one of these big muscle bound guys that loses all his cardio. So, I mean, even when we did all our physical testing and things like that through the national team, you know, there were countless years where we would do our nine and a quarter, which is just, you have to do nine and a quarter laps as hard as you can. And I mean, ultimately it's the lowest time that wins that I would consistently win or be second or, or third. Right. And so to have a guy with a a 230 pound frame doing that. I mean, that just comes down to the genetic side of things, I guess. And just a place that I, you know, I obviously trained very hard for it and I trained very sport specific so that I was able to use the endurance and the size of the muscles that needed to be done that way. It's a tough thing in that, like you said, with the Americans, but you actually get down into more of like a physics style thing on the ice, you know, so many of them are double amps and have being a double amp, you're not limited by obviously your legs there. So you're, you're not limited by flexibility. Most people, if you're sitting down on the floor, touching your toes, it's not an easy task. It's essentially the same thing sitting in a sled when all of a sudden you don't have that limitation of what your muscles are doing in your leg. You're able to have a much longer, much bigger stride. I was able to negate that. I just got a very, very big reach. My wingspan is is quite large. So I was able to negate that that way. The other advantage that these shorter little guys have or the double amps is their sleds are actually smaller. When you're always facing somebody head on head, there comes a point where, you know, in a game of sledge where it's all angling, you're going to angle them so close to the boards that there's going to become a point where they're able to turn and you're not. Just finding a different way to play the game and finding an intelligent way to play the game and not always having to go out there and play that big hit. We were fortunate enough to go down to the States in 2019 with our Calgary Flames affiliated sledge team here. And we were playing against Declan Farmer and Brody Robel, and they are the top guys in the world. They play them properly. It's not a hard process. You know, you just can't go in there all crazy and trying to, you know, smash them with a hit because they're going to be more maneuverable than you. You just need to go in there and almost give them a more of a passive defense and let them just run out of real estate or just skate around the rink, right? If they can't get to the, they can't get to the net to shoot, then you're sort of negating anything that they bring to the table. Those guys, they are like the Connor McDavid's of Perro hockey. They can do things that really blows your mind and what they can do on the ice and in a slide is interesting when you compare them that way, that if you do keep them to the outside, then you're right. That negates the scoring chances and ultimately you can't win hockey games if you can't score. No, that's exactly it. It is harder. I think that's where having that hockey IQ and that hockey experience allows me to see the game that way. Right. And you know, where some of the other guys don't see it that way, they were brought up with a very gung-ho, get in there and make body contact. And you know, with these guys on those double amps, you hit them and they're just, they're bouncing off you or spinning off you. And all of a sudden you've lost body position and then they're getting an incredible scoring chance. It's definitely a crazy sport that way. When you see it played at that level, Billy Bridges retired this year. I mean, he shoots the puck 85 miles an hour with one arm. You got guys like Tyler McGregor on our team. I don't know what Roy Bull or Farmer do their laps in, but I know Mac does his lap in, you know, right around 17 seconds. And, you know, you got Connor McDavid doing his in just a hair under 14. Everything with the sport is, is unreal. It's just at such a high level. And like you said, I think it's so underappreciated here in Canada, not many people get to see that level of hockey. And, you know, that's sort of been one of our big things is trying to get as much exposure into that sport as possible, because it's, it's a, a sport that everybody can play. You don't need to be disabled. You can play all the way to the provincial level 
and not have a disability. It's essentially only once you reach that national level that you need to get classified and have a disability. People that have had knee injuries, people that have had things like that where they wouldn't necessarily be able to skate as well anymore or get out there with your family. It's just such a, a unique sport that way that can be embraced by everybody. Thank you. Talking to you, I have an idea how this process went, but you really started playing para hockey in 2011. You mentioned by the time it was already 2014, you were an alternate for the Paralympics. What was that process like in those short years playing at a rec club level to being scouted and being a part of the national program? It was work. Just work, work, work. I ran into some issues with our, our program here in Calgary. We hadn't really had anybody come out of that program that was at that level. We ended up having to sort of part ways. Their association has done a complete 180 and they do an incredible job now of fostering talent and getting kids in there and allowing them to excel. And at that point, that wasn't a big part of their mandate. I ended up being out in Okotoks, having to facilitate my own ice sessions out here. A town out here has been unbelievable in helping me out in my sledge career. I was able to get ice every single day. It was going out there for hour 15, hour and a half a day and just working my sled skills. And it was not fun. I mean, I was the only guy out here playing. I had a few guys that would come out periodically, but it was five, six days a week of just working as hard as I could to bring up my skills as high as I can at that point, just doing thousands of turns practicing being ambidextrous, practicing my shot, practicing pretty much everything that's parts of the sport that I didn't, you know, needed to work on just being in that sled. When I finally got to get to that next level, I had those pieces in place. And then my hockey IQ was able to go out there and start negating some of those differences that I had with some of these players, because in that short of time, I'm not going to be able to have the skills of a Brad Bowden or a Billy Bridges or any of these guys have been playing their sport their whole life, but you can go out there and still be a very dominant player. And a, a guy my size has the ability to do that because in a game where I can fed, it's very physical. If you're a big, strong guy, I can fight you off. I can push through you. I've got little tips and tricks that I like to pass on to <laughs> the, the guys that I train now, but there's, there's a lot of little things that can be translated over and can make you a very dominant player. Even when you look at the NHL now or any high performance hockey, there's guys out there that aren't necessarily the fastest skaters. They aren't necessarily the most physical guys. I mean, look at Connor Bedard. He's not a speed demon. He's, he's not like a Connor McDavid. He doesn't have a huge stature, but yet somehow he goes out there and he's got an incredible mind for the game and he's worked his shot. So he's got this incredible release and picks up the puck. He just commands space. And that allows him to utilize the tools that he's developed. He's a force out on the ice. It's just realizing those things in para-sport. And you do that more specifically in sledge hockey. It's amazing how much the game opens up. When you first started playing, was it a goal to be on the Paralympic team? From the moment I saw that first game at Windsport, you know, I remember being there. They brought me down to see the team. My wife was there with me. Paul Rosen was doing the play-by-play -play for it. He had me over there. He'd heard about my hockey experience and my background. From literally that moment, this is the direction that my life is going to go and I'm going to do what I need to do to make it happen. You had mentioned that one of the things you didn't get to do in your stand-up career was represent Canada and pull that maple leaf over your chest. When you finally got the chance, what did it feel like to represent Canada? It's very hard to put words around, to tell you the truth. Having gone through everything that I had gone through and getting to walk into that dressing room and see that jersey hang in there with your name on the back and your number it was an indescribable feeling obviously a very emotional time when i got into that for the first time because yeah i don't know a single canadian kid that doesn't dream of representing their country you know regardless of what sport you're playing just canada being hockey getting to do that and growing up and watching the world juniors so few hockey players do get that chance to be able to do that it was unbelievable i usually don't get caught up for words even here I am just about over 10 years later, and it's still, I still get goosebumps. It's still hard to describe on what all those emotions and feelings were sort of rushing through the first time I got to do that. When you finally saw your name and your number in that red and white, was that a moment for you where you stepped back and reflected on everything you've gone through from growing up in Martinsville to WHL to your concussions and then through your accident and the pivot away from at that point of firefighting to the accident to, wow, that I just accomplished this. Did you take a moment to actually be proud of your accomplishments? I definitely did. I can't say that I didn't. Just having that goal mindset, I had to 
had to take that all in and then know that we were going out there and playing the game. <laughs> we sort of needed to shelf that. I know that once that game was played, getting to see my family, it was an emotional experience because they were all on that roller coaster ride with me and uh, supported me through the highs and, and lows of absolutely everything. It was a big deal for everybody that took part in my journey, getting to see that finally happen to sort of have that holy crap moment, things have sort of come full circle through all the crap and tragedy that, that I'd gone through losing hockey at one point and then having the accident and coming, you know, back and all of a sudden having, being able to wear that jersey. It's unbelievable. You have retired from the national team, in a sense, moved on. You've created this platform. And so through your national team experience, was that when you felt that, okay, I have a story to tell and suddenly a circle is full and now I can create this platform to tell it? How did that process start for you? I ended up back in the fire industry again. I became the first above knee amputee firefighter in North America. I retired from hockey even while I was playing. It became sort of a plight for me that I didn't want anybody to have to deal with what I dealt with. I wanted to be able to show people that the light at the end of the tunnel is always there. And I know on, on our show here that, you know, Canada's ultimate challenge. The one thing I always say is the only limitations in life are the limitations you put on yourself. That was one thing that I really wanted people to understand by doing that. And then knowing the impact that sport had on my life, I wanted to make sure that people always had an outlet for sport. So we created a sled hockey program that's free for kids with disabilities so we can get kids out there. We've got a roller sled program. I just want to make sure that everybody has that access to sport, you know, regardless of what it is. You know, we started the Cedar Strand Foundation that gives equipment to kids with disabilities. And it's just something that means so much to me because I know how big a role it played in my life and, and allowed me to come full circle with things. You know, if I didn't have hockey and I didn't have sport, you know, I don't know where, where I'd be right now. You know, I mean, there were obviously some very dark days back then and it, it really did bring me through and, and show me the light that if it's out there and I want to do it and I put my mind to it, I don't think I can't. I always think that it's obtainable and the old adage where there's a will, there's a way. That's really admirable. Chris, because I, I think you do look at your story and there's a lot of people that would have given up by now. And it sounds like you're not near ready to give up on anything because of your platform and because of who you are and your advocacy for para hockey. You've been able to introduce it to a lot of Albertans across the province. And one of those Albertans has been the Humboldt Broncos bus crash survivor, Ryan Stretchnitsky. How did that relationship come to be? You know, that, that ended up happening just right after the bus crash. You know, I had heard, obviously that was a very impactful moment for me, just hearing about that bus crash spending. I couldn't even tell you the countless hours I spent on buses through my stand-up career. When I heard well, the first thing that really he wanted to do was play para ice hockey. I, I wanted to be that guy to introduce him to it. And the fact that he was, you know, a local to around Calgary, essentially. I knew I was going to be able to help facilitate that. So I got used some of my media contacts and got them to get me in touch with Tom and Michelle. And one of my friends that I know here, George Canyon, we're actually going to go and fly out and see him in Saskatoon. And they put a media ban in place. And so it took a little bit longer to, to get introduced to him. But ultimately, we got to go meet Ryan. And when he got transferred to the foothills here, I saw, you know, I sort of saw me there in, in that bed. And the difference was, is for me, it took a long time to find that hope and to find that drive again. And with Ryan, it was already there. He's one of the most remarkable individuals I've ever met. Just his sheer character. He's got so many qualities to him that it's character is just the tip of the iceberg for him. The amount of time and work that he put in in physio and everything like that to have an accident as significant as his and for him to be on the ice four and a half months later just speaks volumes about what he's like. From the first time I met him, like I said, there were so many parallels within our story that we just hit it off. He's like a little brother to me now. We're on this crazy journey to get him onto the national para ice hockey team as well. He's making these incredible strides forward and all he's been to camps now he's he's starting to see that light is there for him right through the all the hard work and everything that he's done it is it is absolutely obtainable for him there's been a lot of ups and downs with him being a younger kid i probably have a little bit of harder mentality than what he might be used to sometimes but you know to me that's sometimes you just need to hear what needs to be said you know there's 
too much tiptoeing around sometimes in this world. And sometimes you just need to you need to hear what's going on. That's one quality that I have is I won't lie to somebody. I think that you need to be called out on something. I'm going to make sure that, you know, that you're being called out on it. And I'm no different. We had some drama on the show that came of this. I get very intense with things and I had to learn that my intensity isn't necessarily for everybody. And I had to learn that I needed to be held accountable and I held myself accountable and, and pulled back. But for him, I can't wait to see what the future holds for Ryan, because in the few short years, we're coming up on the fifth year anniversary on the sixth year. And, you know, in that time period, he's accomplished so many things and inspired so many people internationally that it's incredible. He's just a, an amazing, amazing human being and deserves everything that is coming his way. I can't believe that we're coming up on the fifth year anniversary of that already to look at the national development rosters that are being released and to see his name. It's pretty amazing how far he's come. It's really neat how you've been able to just take him under your wing and you might have went through your own struggles, but it's very inspiring to see that you realize that you have this story that the next generation doesn't have to go through the same struggles and you can help them along that way. It does sound like everything you've encountered throughout your life, you've just learned to pivot whether it's been set new goals, challenges that come your way. So it seems fitting that you are on this season of Canada's Ultimate Challenge. But for people who aren't familiar with the show, how would you describe it? And what made you try out for it? It's sort of like an amazing race meets American Ninja Warrior. But you're not racing. It's, it's more of a, it's a challenge-based show. They basically take a whole bunch of these iconic Canadian landmarks and turn them into giant obstacle courses. I was approached to, to be on the show and decided that this was going to be a great thing. Obviously a big challenge for me to be on there being the only adaptive athlete on the show. I felt that, you know, it did sort of fit right in with my platform. I know that there was recently an above the amputee that did survivor down in the States. But I'm not aware of any other Canadians above me, actually Canadians that have done it. So to be out there and be able to show people that, again, anything is possible. It was sort of a no-brainer for me to go out there and show that I could compete with some absolutely incredible able-bodied athletes. It was an incredible experience to be able to go out there and do that and have some drama and some funny moments happen during the show and make some lifelong friends through that experience. I have people that I'm going to know for the rest of my life. We were through so many highs and lows on that show. You just make those connections. I'm a person that believes that you can learn something from everybody out there and getting to hear these people's stories and learn the challenges that a lot of these people have been through and whether that's race or gender or religion, any of these things said, everybody has a story and it's not about the severity of your story. It's, it's really about the journey that you go through. And you can't compare one story to another. My worst day is going to be a lot different than somebody else's worst day. But really, when you compare the two, you're still dealing with two people's worst days. And they won't know what I've gone through and I haven't known what they've gone through. To be able to sit there and learn from those experiences from people, I think that just helps. If we would have that mindset, we would we'd just be able to grow as humans just so much quicker and, and be so much more compassionate and aware of what's going on with people because it's not all completely visible struggles like somebody like me, right? It's obviously very apparent that I'm missing a limb. Most people don't know about the mental health struggles and things like that that I've gone through. If you're an able-bodied person or an able-bodied person of color, there's just so many different aspects to the way that people deal with things. So it was such a cool experience in that sense. Someone who worked with the Paralympic team once told me that you can see what guys are dealing with, whether it's being paralyzed, double amputee, single amputee. But that's not the challenge when it comes to para hockey. The challenge comes to the mental aspect and that every single player deals with so much more than the pressures of the game and what's happening. To hear that every single day you're Bill, having the mental effects of everything you've gone through, and then you meet people across the world, or in this case, across the country, who's the same thing. You can see the race, the religion, the gender, everything. You can see that, but it is all the mental sides of it, too. I've always been very curious about these shows in terms of filming. So when you're filming, do you spend all of your time together with your team outside of filming? Did you get to come home in between challenges or how did that work? We were, we were essentially out on the road a 
for the entire time. You'd sort of go into each place and you'd have your three challenges set up. So you'd have a travel day generally worked out that each day was a different challenge and another travel day and on to the next location and everybody there you're on set with everybody you're not just spending it with your team you know you obviously try and have as you know a close a team as you can and, and have that team dynamic that way but when you're you're out on the roads like that you're you're gonna have people clash as far as personalities go and everything that way as much as everyone wants in this world to be best friends with everybody it doesn't always work that way so you know being on set like that it was, it was cool because everybody understood, I think, what people were going through and the struggles of whether that was being away from home or being away from your kids and family or being away from your job. There were a lot of these struggles that were happening on the show and the camaraderie that came within everybody there to try and support anybody that was dealing with the show was, uh, was a very cool thing to see. There was a lot of, just a lot of compassion on the show. Did you get either the list of challenges, train how you want, or how did you prepare to go into this? Essentially almost the same way that the viewers see it on TV. You'd go out, we'd stand on our platforms, they'd sort of give us a slight rundown of what was going on. Then we'd get to see these challenges. So it was a, an interesting thing, not knowing what you were going toward or what you were going to be, what you needed to be training for. And some of the things more specifically for me were, I'm going to say the hardest thing that happened to me on that show was actually in our first episode. It was a relay for the very first challenge. And I had to jump over a wall, which wasn't a problem, but then I had to walk along these balance beams. And, and that's just something I've never, ever done as an amputee. <laughs> I was wearing like my you know, running shoes that didn't have great ankle support. I got out there and just went like, oh crap, I have no problem climbing a wall or jumping in a boat or lifting heavy stuff and walking along these mountains was something that I guess most people looked at and would just be like, okay, you know, this is, that's an easy thing. And it, it wasn't, we saw people fall off with them, but you know, for me to be able to go out there and do that, it was one of the harder things that I had to accomplish out there, but not seeing those challenges before, there's just no way to prepare for what you need to do. It's just, I guess, having, you know, just a sort of a great overall athletic background is what allowed people to succeed out there. You mentioned that you don't think that outside of the single leg amputee and survivor, you don't know if there's been another amputee on, on a show like this. How did it feel competing against able-bodied competitors and then going through challenges like this or even just being ultimately the first in Canada? I don't ever look at things that way. I went through a lot of that getting back into the fire industry, just having to really, you know, change people's perceptions. So many people judge a book by its cover. They see somebody come in that's an above me amputee and he's an incredible, incredible human and a legendary Canadian. But, you know, so many people think of Terry Fox, right? And they think of the videos of him out struggling while he was doing the Marathon of Hope and the thing is, is prosthetics and that world has come so far since then. For me to go out and to be able to be a firefighter, obviously you need to be able to be very physical with what you're doing on the job. I had to be able to pass all the physicals. When it came to coming on the show, I knew that people would have perceptions of me that way. For me, it was just do my thing, right? Go out there and there's no excuses for me that way. It might look a little bit different in the way I have to do things sometimes just because of what I have to deal with. Much like I learned in the fire industry, if I can go out there and I was able to beat able-bodied people in the fire industry through our physical, I competed in the fire fit challenge. I was the first amputee to do the fire fit challenge. I have confidence in myself and I don't need to worry about what people say or think about me. Just having that self-confidence that I know I can go out there and do it. I didn't think about what anyone else was going to say. A lot of the people on the show were just incredible. Christian Oberair from Fort Mac, me and him just absolutely gelled immediately. And Skylar LeBlanc, like these guys were all just, I think they saw that competitive side of me and that compete side of me. And there was going to be no stopping me at the end of the day. If my leg falls off, which it did, I'm going to find a way to get past it, right? Find a way to get through it. It's just having that mentality. It sounds like you, you've done and accomplished a whole lot so far in your life here, Chris. But what's next for you? Next thing for me is going to be just moving forward with my foundation and moving forward with our adaptive program here in Calgary. We're looking at potentially building or amalgamating with a school or a flames program here. We're really looking at that intermediate style. I was a coach for a provincial team or assistant coach with Stevie Arsenal for quite a few years here. And that's sort of the one piece that our pair ice hockey world is missing here. You know, we don't have like a senior program that is there. So, you know, we're really looking at bringing online a proper NHL affiliated program and then getting more people involved in the sport. 
getting the roller sleds out to the children's hospitals and the cancer centers and things like that so that these kids can experience sport and, and get out there and find sort of what makes them go. Not about playing para ice hockey. I mean, obviously, I'd love to see as many kids as possible get in that. But, you know, just giving these kids that exposure to these sports will hopefully open their eyes up if cycling or hand cycling or sit skiing or whatever it is, is their passion. If this is the gateway for them to be able to open their mind up and go, okay, this is possible. That's my goal at the end of the day is just to have as many kids as possible out there doing that. And then, you know, try and do the same thing through my public speaking, just sharing that story and showing people that there is so much more possible out there. If you're willing to really take yourself outside of a comfort zone, so many people live within their little sphere and they're afraid to step outside of that because of the challenges that could be there, having a fear of failure. And through my journey, I've learned that you need to be able to step outside of that sphere. If you know, that's sort of where greatness lives. You can sort of stay inside your little bubble and which is what I was doing after my accident, right? And it wasn't until I stepped outside of that bubble that things really started taking off for me. Well, I can't wait to see where that next step with the para program goes. And I really hope that Hockey Alberta can help out and be a part of it. I have one last very loaded question for you. Where can people learn about your story, what you're doing, or connect with you? I have a website for cedarstrand.com. They can go on there or they can see my story, they can sort of see what's going on. There's the foundation page where they can see what we're doing as far as the foundation. And then Cedar Strand 21 is sort of my IG handle. That's my biggest place that I am probably most active. I'm an old man. I'm in my mid 40s. So technology and me are not quite the most frequent poster, but generally when I post something, it's very interesting. Those are sort of your main ways to see what's going on in my world and see what I'm working on next. If anyone has any ideas or want to help out with the parent program or the foundation or has a kid or knows of a kid that would like to get involved in para sport, I'm absolutely willing to, to help out and facilitate that in any way I can. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Chris. If anyone out there is interested in watching Canada's Ultimate Challenge, it is on CBC and CBC Gem. I believe the season finale is coming right up. I really appreciate you sharing your story and you truly are an inspiration. Thank you for being a part of the Hockey Alberta community. Thank you so much for having me and giving me a platform to talk about. Thank you for listening to the Hockey Alberta podcast. For this episode and more, head to hockeyalberta.ca. If there's a topic you'd like covered on an upcoming episode, email info at hockeyalberta.ca. 